All right, Soul Company, you guys can go ahead and have a seat. Yes. Welcome to Salt Company. Man, this is pretty epic to see not only the old faithful Salt Minneapolis people where we usually gather, but also the Salt St. Paul people where we are. This is a treat for me. If you guys don't know me, my name is Austin. Hey, I am, I have the privilege of leading Salt Company Minneapolis this upcoming year, and I'm super stoked. Hey, thank you guys. Just an honor to be with you tonight, and we are closing out Somersault Right. We're looking at James chapter 4. If you've got a Bible, would love if you would turn to James chapter 4 with me. You can follow along in your Bibles. It's going to be epic. But before, you know, as you're turning there, I've got a question to ask you. Have you ever wanted something that you can't quite have? Ever wanted something that you can't have? Maybe this is like a a state championship. You can close the yearbook on that one. Maybe it's a 4.0. Maybe it was like a piece of clothing that you wanted. You saw them walking down the street with, you're like, yeah, that looks real nice, but not in your budget. Have you ever wanted something that you can't have? Uh, for me, maybe you liked the article of clothing. I wanted total domination. That's something that I wanted to have. Power. You're like, yikes, dude, that's kind of intense. Hear me out. This is why I wanted total domination, specifically amongst my peers. Here's why. Because I was the short kid with a baby face, okay? So I was short, wanted power, but couldn't quite have it, right? So sports, man, I just wanted to, like, finally have one victory over my peers, but wasn't really the case. But there was one place, one place that I could actually feel dominant, one place that I could feel like I could have victory, and it was the trampoline. Some of you know this. If you had a trampoline at your house growing up, man, the sibling time on the trampoline was dangerous, okay? Here's what I would do. I would literally lure my younger brother into the trampoline. I'd be like, Jacob, hey, don't worry, man. It's going to be a nice, easy, we'll, we'll take it chill this time. We'll just bounce around, have a great time. But as soon as he entered into the cage, I'm telling you, it was WWE. We were just going crazy. Yeah. It was dominant. He was like five years younger than me, okay? So, quite honestly, I was talking to Tony about this. I'm actually, like, pretty bummed about that because, uh, well, me and my brother are really tight now. But it was just like, why was I doing that? I was kind of a jerk to him. But by the grace of God, me and Jacob are tight now. But that trampoline zone, that's where I asserted my dominance because I couldn't find it anywhere else. Because I was, like, insecure and needed to be dominant over somebody, I chose to, like, tear down my brother. I bring this up because in James chapter 4, he's drawing, us, drawing our attention to a human condition that is all too familiar. It's the trampoline exhibit. It's that when we want something that we can't have, we're going to tear it, tear people down to get it. When we want something but we can't have it, we're going to fight for it. An interesting human condition that we're all familiar with. So James is just going to kind of let it rip in chapter 4. And we're going to see really quickly that the way we often deal with jealousy, wanting something that we can't have, causes a lot of problems in our lives. So would you look at me, not look at me, look at James chapter 4 with me right now. 
Verse 1, what causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Can't you relate to this right here? He's saying, man, when you don't get what you want, you're fighting for it. You're willing to tear somebody down, to hate other people for it because they have what you don't. When you want something but you can't get it, you'll kill for it. When you get jealous of what they've got but you can't get it yourself, you tear them down to make yourself feel better. The trampoline exhibit. Hey, how do you deal with the reality of wanting somebody that you, wanting something that you can't have? Who are you tearing down? Even just in your mind or maybe verbally, physically. It's a question that we'll just be asking over and over tonight as we look at three effects of a jealous life. Three effects of a jealous life. Division, adultery, and pride. Kind of gross kind of gross realities, but we've got to address them as James does. So let's look at the first one, division. Verse 1, again, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So it's pretty straightforward here. He's saying, like, if you fight, it's probably because there are a bunch of different opinions about what should be going down. A bunch of different passions at war with one another. And he's talking not specifically to you as an individual, but he's talking to a community of people. You as in the plural version. So he's using this way to talk about the, the local church. This is the early church. They were messy. Guys, just like we are messy. We've got problems in this room. And the reason is, James says... Because we're all wanting different things. So if you just like think about the last argument that you had, what was the cause of that argument? Was it not that you and somebody else wanted different things? You wanted things to get settled differently? Maybe the classic dish example. My goodness, the kitchen in college is a dangerous place. This guy didn't do his dishes on time. Why? Because he wanted to go, you know, hang out with his friends so he didn't wash the plate off. He just wanted to let it soak, you know. Oh, my goodness. It never is solved by soaking, I'm telling you. You wanted different things. You wanted him to clean up his dish so you could have the clean sink, but he just wanted to let it soak. It's always because we're at war with different results that we want. It reminded me of the other day. Uh, so my wife and I have been playing a lot of bananagrams recently. I don't know. Is that what you guys do? Bananagrams. It's epic. It's this sweet game. It's kind of like Scrabble, but you've got all these letter tiles, and you're making little crosswords, and you gather more tiles to make more words, and then you've, you, know, you keep adding more letters until all the letters are gone. First one to uh, complete with all their letters wins. It's a great game. Great for vocabulary exercise. I highly recommend it. We've played a lot of bananagrams. And we decided to take our little banana-shaped bag over to hang with my family, uh, my cousins, my uncle. And so we started playing Bananagrams, and we're really excited because I'm creating all these nice words. But my cousins start to make words way faster than I think they should. 
they're, they're like grabbing tiles. They're saying peel way too fast, right? I'm wondering what's going on. And, of course, it was because they were just making up words. They're just making up words. I'm out here making, like, anguish. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great banana grams word. Uh, but they're making, like, quicks and, like, booga. And, I mean, <laughs> I don't know. It's so weird. I, that was actually a kind of a popular one. It's kind of funny. But, uh, man. I wanted to play the game by the rules, so I was like, hey, you're destroying the integrity of bananagrams. Don't make fun of it that way. But they just wanted to have fun. You know, they were not the greatest spellers, so they needed to, like, deal with that by making booga instead of anything else. So, anyway, it got to the point. I was kind of, like, looking at Cora, my wife, and I was like, hey, this is, like, not okay. They're messing with our game right now. And so things just started to, like, get really heated. All of a sudden, I, like, found myself jumping across the table, and I just, like, almost punched. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't, like. Okay, but some of you guys are way too serious about board games. Chill out a little bit, please. Just take it down one notch. Secret Hitler. Oof. Triggered. Triggered. Anyway. Why? Why all of this? When it's a serious problem or something as playful as a board game, why is there so much division? It's because we want different things, guys. We want, but we do not have, so we murder. This is verse 2. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. The effect of a jealous life, as soon as there's a threat to what you want... They become an enemy. They become the next target of an insult. Because the most important thing to you is getting what you want. Soul Company, what if we stopped asking for things that we would spend on ourselves, that would boost our own personal brand, but what if we started asking for the right thing that would build us up? What if we started asking for unity? This is the right thing. Guys, we need to learn how to ask for the right thing instead of things to just spend on ourselves. Because if, if ultimately what we're asking for is just things for our own personal enjoyment, what's going to happen is we're going to leave a trail of broken relationships behind us. What we need to ask for is complete satisfaction that comes from God alone. A life built around him. Because the best investment that you could ever make is to give your life fully to him. To be completely for Jesus. To let him have every part of your life. And so company, he's available and ready to meet your need tonight. Whatever that is. To give you what you actually need tonight. Jesus frees us from division and gives us unity by satisfying us completely. A satisfied people is a unified people. And so the application for us is simple, to look to Jesus for satisfaction. Not to look to the world to meet our needs, but to look at Christ. And when we do that, we will be unified in him. If a life of jealousy produces division... A life of deep satisfaction in Christ produces unity. But here's the thing. As good as that sounds, our tendency is not to do that. 
Our tendency is to look to other places for satisfaction. Look with me at verse 4. James comes in pretty hot. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Effect number two of a jealous life, adultery. Here's what you need to know going into this section. That marriage was given to us by God, actually as a symbol of a greater heavenly reality. This is something that has totally blown my mind over the past couple of years and has reshaped the way that I view relationships, the way that I view marriage. And as I've stepped into marriage now with Cora, it's actually been foundational to how we live each and every day. We were given marriage to be a symbol, an arrow to point to who God is. We're able to marry and be given in marriage so that we can understand something about God and his character, about his love for us. Namely, that he's committed to his people through a covenant, through a promise. And God will not break that promise. It is a bond that will never be broken. Therefore, God will never leave his people, no matter how nasty the relationship gets, no matter how one-sided the relationship gets. And this actually brings him glory because he's faithful to his people. He'll never leave or forsake. And so that's the picture that we get. Marriage, when it is done with love and faithfulness, points us to the love and faithfulness of God. I found it super encouraging just to chat with couples that have been married for 10, 20, 50, 60 years. And it is totally God's grace in their life that they've been able to commit to each other for that long. And what I found is if you were to ask any of those couples that have been married even just a decade but up to 60, 70 years, what I've noticed is that they will always tell you it was a choice. It was a commitment. They were gritty. They didn't always feel like loving each other. They didn't always feel like committing to each other. They didn't always meet expectations. Certainly, one partner would let down the other. Certainly, there would be seasons of disappointment, but they never gave up. They were gritty. And this is just a picture of God's commitment to you. One of unfailing love, no matter how bad the circumstances get, he's never going to leave his people. Isn't that amazing? So, if you have been bought with the blood of Christ... You can be confident that you are bound to him. Bound to him like a husband is bound to a wife. That's why we can, always, uh, we can often refer to the church as Christ's bride. If you want to read about some of this, read Ephesians 5. It's amazing that the church is Christ's bride who he laid his life down for. The bride is beautifully presented to the husband, precious, Jesus loves his church. He loves his people. This reality, like I said, has just totally shaped my view of marriage because now I know that as Jesus serves me, so I ought to serve 
my wife. It's a beautiful display and a beautiful example for me as a husband. So marriage is a picture of God's love. And in the same way, adultery is a picture of our rebellion against God. When the bride of Christ, the people who are his, choose to leave him to go find another love somewhere else, that is committing adultery against him. That's why James uses this really intense word, you adulterous people. He's saying, hey, guys, can't you see that you're bound to Christ, that he can meet your every need? But you're going off to a different place and trying to find satisfaction somewhere else. You're committing adultery because we've been married to Christ thinking that somebody else is going to fill a gap that he doesn't fill, not knowing that that's actually just not the case. Maybe we're just not looking hard enough into the character of Jesus and realizing that he can meet every need that we do have. When we're constantly looking at the world and thinking, man, it'd be nice to have some of that. Oh, wouldn't it, my life would be so complete if I could just have that. My life would be so much better. I would finally feel comfort and satisfaction if I could just have that thing, right? Man, that's flirting with the world. That constant conversation of jealousy, of seeing what everybody else has, it's a slippery slope. Adultery, whether earthly or against God, wreaks havoc on relationships. Just want to address that there are several people probably in this room where whether it was a parent, a relative, someone close to you experienced adultery, and you know, you know well enough that this causes just deep pain and hurt. Just want to say, man, that's never the way that it was supposed to be. And so I'm really sorry just for the, the pain and like the hurt brokenness that's come from that. That's not the way it's supposed to be. And there is freedom, there's healing found in Jesus because just like adultery in earthly relationships, it's, it's a, all a symbol of a heavenly reality. It hurts on an earthly level just because it hurts God. It breaks his heart. It's costly to commit adultery. But I want you to see something in verse 5. This is epic. I want you to see this in verse 5. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Do you get what this is saying? God is jealous for you. You, the adulterer. You, the one who has left him a thousand times to go chase after some other love. God wants you still. You cannot out-sin him. You cannot outrun him. You are never too far gone for his love because he is bound to you. He loves you enough to chase you down in your sin because he wants you. The beauty of the gospel is that in Christ, every betrayal has been paid for. Every single time that you left God for another love, he paid for that on the cross. 
Every time you forget that he can meet your every need and you go try and find that somewhere else, he's paid for that. All your betrayals, past, present, future, were paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. Why? Because he wants you. It's just that simple, guys. He wants you. You belong to him, so he made a way for you to be in a restored relationship, not because of what you could offer him, but, be, but because of what he wanted to do for you and what he can offer for you. It's a one-sided relationship, and it gives him all the glory. God's not going to give up on you guys, so the application is simple to just let him have you. Let him have you fully. Be wrapped up in the love of God and love that you get to be loved by him and find satisfaction in him. If a jealous life produces adultery, then a life of deep satisfaction in Christ produces faithfulness, grit, even when it gets hard. So I'm praying that we would each see the great love that Christ has for his bride and simply stand in awe. Be totally amazed at the faithfulness of God that he will never leave even an adulterous people. The third way that we deal with wanting what we can't have. Third effect of a jealous life, pride. And I just want to revisit that first question that we asked at the beginning. Hey, how do we deal with wanting what we can't have? Oftentimes, there's really two options in front of us. We can respond with pride, or we can respond with humility. Look at verse 6 with me. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Okay. Pride and humility. Pride is thinking of yourself as bigger than you actually are. Here's what happens when we operate with a prideful posture. Basically, everything that goes wrong, everything that we can't get is someone else's fault because ultimately I deserve every good thing. I deserve that promotion. I deserve that compliment. I deserve them to like me. I deserve them to approve of me. And whenever that doesn't happen, it doesn't make sense. Why don't they like me? I'm kind of an epic person. I'm kind of an awesome guy. Why can't I get that promotion? I totally deserve that. Why would my family member get sick? They don't deserve that. I don't deserve to suffer. The proud person who is the one who always believes that they deserve good things to happen to them. That, the, that your life should always be up and to the right. Hotter and richer. And so whenever something doesn't go your way or an obstacle is put in front of you, it doesn't make sense. That is the result of pride. But humility is kind of the inverse. It's shrinking to your own true size. It's being honest about your sinfulness in relation to a holy God. And here's the thing, guys. I talked about this once before that We've got a lot to be humble about. Think of how dependent we are. We need air. We need food. We need shelter. 
You need mom and dad to get together. You needed everything right for you to exist. You're incredibly dependent. But God's not like that. He exists totally by himself. He's completely self-sufficient. He wasn't created, nor will he cease to exist. He's been around for eternity past and will be around for eternity future. He's totally independent, self-sufficient, totally unlike us in that way. We have a lot to be humble about, a lot to be dependent about. And so when we get a good look at a holy God, a God like that, we shrink to our true size. Because humility comes when we have an encounter with something way bigger than we are. Humility comes when we realize, oh man, maybe I'm not as big of a deal as I thought I was. This made me think uh, of fifth grade football. Maybe you've been there. Guys, like I said, kind of short, kind of small. Fifth grade, very short, very small. And so the coaches put me as the quarterback. I'm pretty sure it was because I was, like, not quite fast enough to be the running back. Definitely shouldn't be put on the offensive line. Not quite tall enough to, like, go up and catch the passes. And plus, in fifth grade football, like, you're just not throwing that many passes. So really, you're just the guy that's bringing the ball from the center and handing it to the fast guy, and then they take off. And that's all you got to be responsible for. So that's why I was the quarterback. And actually, guys, I actually, like, thought back. I'm pretty sure I passed, like, .75 average passes, like, per game. Passed less than one time a game. And every time that I did it, it would always be like a bootleg where I'd have to, like, sneak out to the side because I couldn't even see over the linemen. They're like, I needed more room for my eyes to see my target. But it did work every once in a while, so that's kind of nice. But, man, I remember this one time. We were facing this other team where the football players, like, you show up and you're a fifth grader. I've got, like, the baby face. But then there's some of them that show up to, like, the first day of practice and they've already got a beard in fifth grade. Or, like, their biceps are just the size of my head. I mean, it didn't make sense. Okay, that's the other team. Maybe this is blown out of proportion in my mind's eye. But, man, the other team, especially the, the defensive linemen, as I'm going down to hike the ball, they were huge. Especially the first, uh, just the guy that was playing nose tackle. I swear. 300 pounds, massive, fifth grader. I'm like 45 pounds in fifth grade. Okay, so I just remember this one time, go up. I'm ready to hike the ball. I'm nervous, you know, and I hike the ball, and I take one step back, and this dude must have plowed so hard through the center because before I know it, I've still got the ball, and I'm literally pancaked just right on the ground. This dude just laid on me, and the wind got knocked out of me. Oh, my gosh. I remember laying there, and my mom's, like, on the side, like, oh, honey, you know, as moms do. I just got totally pancaked by this nose tackle. Wind knocked out of me. That was an encounter with something way bigger than I was. From then on, I'm telling you, every single play that I made it out of there alive, I considered as a gift. I never, <laughs> I no longer thought of myself, I don't think I really did, but man, I was for sure not a big shot quarterback. I was just the dude that needed to get out of the way and get out from danger. But it came from this encounter 
with something way bigger than I was. That's what humility is, guys. Encountering something that puts you in perspective, that shrinks you to your own size, your true size. Let's read back in verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. It's kind of intense, right? Maybe not what you're expecting to hear. But the whole reason James talks about this is because he wants us to have the right perspective, that we are totally dependent on a holy God. That's the right perspective to have, that we should be lowly in comparison to a holy God. But I want to just tell you about somebody who I've seen tremendous humility from. In fact, it's the greatest display of humility that I've ever seen. It's who James is writing about this whole time. This whole time, it's supposed to be an arrow to this person, the most humble man to ever live. His name is Jesus, God the Son. Think about that. The most humble man to ever live was God. You see, God who had existed from eternity past and will exist for eternity future. He made all things, holds the world together, worthy of praise and honor, worthy of adoration, the only one totally worthy of praise. He decided actually to put on flesh, to climb down the ladder, to be in a humble position, born in the middle of nowhere into a poor family, to be raised up, to mature, to work with his hands. He would go on to teach, to do miracles. He would follow the instruction of God, the guidance of God perfectly, in perfect submission to him. And that led the people of his day to actually hate him. Hate him enough to kill him. But he let them because he was humble. He followed God's guidance perfectly and it led him to death. He was stripped of his clothes, stripped of his dignity, stripped of his honor. And he was killed on a Roman cross. This is like the most gruesome form of punishment that we know of. God was emptied, emptied of everything, completely low, low to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why would he do that? Because he's jealous for you. Because he wants you. And so he needed to display humility perfectly. And so this is the greatest display that we'll ever see. The one person who deserved praise. The one person who really did deserve the good life chose to lay it down. The one who had a perfect relationship with God chose to be separated from him so that we 
could have this promise from that last passage I read, that if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. That was purchased for us by Jesus on the cross. It's because of this that God raised Jesus from the dead and seated, it, seated him on the right hand of God, that he gave him a name that is above every name, so that every knee would bow, every tongue would confess that he is Lord. And one day, all that have identified with him, all that have given their lives to him, they too will be exalted. They too will be raised into new life and spend eternity with him forever. That's good news. That's hope. But it ultimately comes from humility. We don't need to exalt our own name, but we can stay low. Exalt the name of Christ, and we too will be exalted one day. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So tonight we've looked at these three effects of a jealous life. Division, adultery, and pride. But ultimately what I want you guys to see is not necessarily those three effects of a jealous life, but I want you to see three effects of a life satisfied by Christ, fulfilled in Christ. The inverse of division, adultery, and pride is the three effects of a satisfied life in Christ, unity, faithfulness, and humility. God wants his people to be totally unified, having no wall of hostility or division present. God wants his people to be faithful, to be full of grit, to keep going even when times get hard. God wants his people to be humble, ready to serve, and build others up. And the beauty of the gospel is that all three were fulfilled in the person of Jesus. That when Jesus died, the curtain that divided God from man was torn in two. There is now unity. That Jesus said, as he said, I will never leave or forsake you. There's faithfulness. And that Jesus was the most humble man to ever live. The greatest display of humility was him dying on the cross, ready to lay his life down for those that he loved. And he was raised. This is the risen King Jesus. Would we follow him together? That's the good life. Would you pray with me? God, thanks for James, the gift that this book has been over this summer. Thanks for the hard truths that he speaks of. Thanks for the words of wisdom that he gives us. God, we want to be people who are full, full of adoration for your character. People that are hum humble. People that are faithful. God, but we can only do that through you, through your spirit. Thank you for the perfect example that you've given us in Christ. I pray that we would just see him tonight. God, meet us here in this place. You are so worthy of our worship, so I'm so thankful we get to sing songs to declare these truths, that you are faithful to an adulterous people. God, would you be glorified in this place, be honored in our hearts as we try and live this out. This isn't just a Wednesday night thing, God. This is each and every moment of our lives. So we just say, God, we give it to you. We give everything to you.
knowing that this is for our good and for your glory. Would you walk with us for the remainder of this summer? And God, would you move mightily on the campuses this fall? We're thankful for what you are doing and expectant for what you will continue to do. So Father, we praise you, we love you, and we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.